from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Danny Wisentowski. Science fiction often thrives in the spaces between what's possible, what is, and what could be. But Afrofuturism, which combines black culture and science fiction, is a movement that exploded, that's exploding in popularity right now. A big part of it, of course, is the rise of the film series Black Panther, whose sequel Wakanda Forever, released last week, returns viewers to an imagined African civilization, a country thriving with high-tech superpowers and energy sources existing in secret, insulated from the real-world effects of colonialism, slavery, and plunder. But Afrofuturism is so much bigger than just Black Panther, and the movement is thriving right here in St. Louis. To talk about Afrofuturism and how St. Louis creatives are putting their own mark on it, we have three guests in the studio today. David Kirkman is a St. Louis filmmaker, and his debut film is an Afrofuturist epic, Underneath Children of the Sun. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And also with us is Reynaldo Anderson, Associate Professor of Africology and African American Studies at Temple University. He's also the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Black Speculative Arts Movement. Professor Anderson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. And finally, rounding on our panel is Deja Polk. She is a multidisciplinary artist and the Midwest Field Coordinator for the Black Speculative Arts Movement. Deja, it's great to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. So to start this conversation, I'd, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on what Afrofuturism is. What does that term uh, mean to you? And Professor Anderson, I'd love if you'd start us off. Okay, uh, a real straightforward description of it is, it's how people of African descent locate themselves in space and time with agency. And it emerges out of a speculative tradition that is distinct from European science fiction, uh, whereas European science fiction emerges during the Victorian era, during a crisis in the British Empire with a lot of the writers living around London, the black speculative tradition emerges as a response to scientific racism, exploitation, uh, slavery, colonialism, and so forth. So they kind of run parallel to each other. And I would love to open this question up to the rest of our panelists, but I'm also interested what our listeners think of Afrofuturism. What does Afrofuturism mean to you? And if you're a fan of a movie like Black Panther, what resonates with you about its setting or its message? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpr.org. So, David, Afrofuturism, how, how would you explain this? <clears throat> it's a question I've been asked a lot, and you know, I was really introduced to Afrofuturism through Dr. Anderson, and um, I would say that Afrofuturism is it differs from science fiction in a sense to where in science fiction there is a foundational bed in which the fiction has to jump off of, right? And so in science fiction, you have to have the science, then you introduce the fiction. Um, in Afrofuturism, you really, you know, all of that kind of goes out the window. It's kind of a, a, a medium in which black people can just exist, exist in the future. We exist presently. We exist. We've always been here. And we could have um, this, you know, we have limitless space to just imagine what the possibilities are. And so that's what I would say Afrofuturism is. 
And, and Deja, you know, we, we just heard some discussions of Afrofuturism, the context of science fiction and writing, but it's also an aesthetic. It's a look. It's a fashion. It's it's a vibe that you put out and, and where those inspirations come from. And tell us a little bit about that and then the way that Afrofuturism has been part of your style. Absolutely. Um, just as David finished off, um, reimagining, right? So what Afrofuturism, what Afrofuturism has allowed us to do is kind of reimagine and redefine how we exist, you know, we're, and in that, of course, in all things, uh, one of our greatest ways in which to express whatever it is that we're thinking, feeling, um, absorbing or influenced by kind of comes forward um, through our art. And uh, like me and many other creatives, we showcase our art and everything. And so, of course, being a Afrofuturist myself, um, I never really thought about it <laughs> in a sense of like, oh, I just kind of Afrofuturistic. Um, but, of course, now uh, more than ever, uh, seeing also my Pan-African influence allowing me to have like this kind of tap in with all these different cultures and being able to bring that in and embody that and symbolize that with the different things that I choose to wear. So look at you, Hannah. <laughs> so, you know, and it, it's a great point because uh, it feels like this term or this idea has been around for longer than there was this this term of Afrofuturism. And there's been wonderful, of course, science fiction writers, uh, you know, mm. Octavia Butler, Samuel Delaney, people who have constructed these incredible visions that come from their own history and their own path. But Reynaldo, I wanted to ask you, this term Afrofuturist itself, where, where did that come from? And, and what coalesced once that, that label um, was kind of created? Well, that term emerges after the Cold War, early 90s. Uh, a cultural critic by the name of Mark Derry published an essay where he coins the term in conversation with uh, the recently deceased um, cultural critic Greg Tate, uh, the scholar Tricia Rose, and the science fiction writer uh, Samuel Chip Delaney. And so at the time, this term, uh, as Mark has recounted to me in his memory, he was in his apartment in New York when he was getting ready, I think, for the uh, interview, and he just it kind of just popped into his head at that time. And so the rest is history in terms of... Uh, how it was later kind of looked at as kind of a catch-all phrase, even though at the time, he and most other people at that time, except for people who were really into the scholarship, were unaware of the black speculative tradition, which had been going on since the middle of the 19th century. And, you know, David, I, I wanted to ask you um, about... You know, I think what is when people think of Afrofuturism, I think they do often think of the, the 2018 film Black Panther, which just had its sequel. But, you know, that film is part of the Marvel superhero universe. But so much what it seems to me that struck people is seeing that image of Wakanda, seeing this kind of notion of a black civilization that rises independently and isn't in conversation with the big Western powers or colonialism. What, what did you see in that, in that movie? And, and is that a vision of Afrofuturism that feels like th that's blossoming now? No, absolutely. I mean, what I saw in that film was really a celebration of blackness on the highest imaginable <laughs> levels possible in mainstream media. Um, you're talking about a film that had a budget of $200 million, which has never happened for a majority black cast um, and uh, a, a core um, authorship, you know, core creative authorship behind the camera with Ryan Coogler and the writer and 
um, uh, I forgot who did the costumes, but she won the Oscar. But that was the first time that really happened. And so Black Panther was effective in the way to where it entered mainstream. People were able to see this is this is amazing. This is something that number one, you know, there's been a lot of people on the ground floor trying to or who have been really defining what Afrofuturism is, Black Panther took a lot of those ideas and injected that into the zeitgeist of conversation. And so that's what I think, um, how, why, why Black Panther was as important as it, as it is. And, and for it to, to make a billion dollars at the box office, you know, that, that kind of opened the door for more films at that level to possibly be made. Um, and for investors and bankers and, you know, people in the studio to say, oh, okay, this is actually, not only is it important culturally, but it's also a viable business to actually kind of get into. And that point you made also about, you know, an Afrofuturist vision in some ways, essentially being produced by black creatives to have those people who are making it in some way. Is that a line you're drawing between what is Afrofuturism? It's something that is made and dreamt up by black creatives. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's that's where the authorship has to has to begin. And I think that's what the main defining factor between Afrofuturism and uh, sci fi, you know, science fiction is, because that is more of uh, a medium that's been defined by the white space for the most part, and the most and profited by um, uh, uh, by the white space. So I would say Afrofuturism, uh, the authorship definitely begins with blackness and uh, people of the African diaspora. And we need to take a quick break, but we're going to continue our discussion of Afrofuturism with filmmaker David Kirkman, Professor Reynaldo Anderson, and multidisciplinary artist Deja Polk. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. David, you have a new film out, and it's underneath Children of the Sun, and it is an action-packed, time-skipping sci-fi epic. It tells, amongst other really wild threads in that story, a story of an enslaved person in antebellum Missouri, and also of two siblings who are traveling to Earth from their home planet to seek a powerful artifact from their father. Let's listen to a scene from that movie. I was there when your father first activated his power. Well, we should be doing the same thing. We're missing another piece, a crystal inky force to manipulate its power at will. Otherwise, it would sporadically activate. When the crystal and the pyramid are energized together, it forms infinite possibilities, power, answers, access to another plane of existence. Where is the crystal? We believe it's back on Earth. Well, I will retrieve it. Wait. We should not be returning to Earth under any circumstances. Why not? Our present debut in there would only ruin the balance of the cosmos. That is the reason why Father wanted us not to return. He both know this. What else would you have us do? If one of us can retrieve the crystal, we can restore the atmosphere. <laughs> I know you, Nibira. You won't just get the crystal. It will consume you. It will consume any of us. 
And that was a clip from David Anderson's new film, Underneath Children of the Sun. And David, that that scene, it features, I think, something that I think we're familiar with a lot of superhero Marvel movies. They've identified the powerful object that will either save or destroy their civilization that is facing a climate crisis. And there's a conflict between these two siblings. Who will have that power and Mm. and who will be that savior? Mm. Tell us a bit about the making of this film and and where Afrofuturism comes to play in in such a visually distinct uh, medium that you created here. So firstly, it's so funny. I think, uh, you know, me and Dr. Anderson have, you know, fused into one person. <laughs> it, it was, you know, you know, Dr. Anderson and then there's, you know, David Kirkman. But, you know, um, I think, um, uh, you know, how this film really came about was really just the desire to see us in you know, these imaginative spaces without any limits. And so I'm, you know, I'm a huge, huge, you know, Star Wars fan. I'm a huge, you know, science fiction fan and things of that nature. But I think once we get into, you know, filmmaking and, you know, uh, you don't really see, we're kind of really defined into um, uh, one, one type of one type of role or, you know, one, one type of stories we can actually tell. And so um, it kind of came about that way. And over time, as I, you know, began to learn more about the possibilities of um, of Afrofuturism, um, I began to incorporate some of those elements into um, our film. Now, Afrofuturism also has a lot of histor- black historical elements, right? Um, uh, so I looked deep into Sumerian mythology. I look deep into Ethiopian history. I look deep into comedic history and decided to incorporate some of those things in the movie. And that kind of began to take shape that way. This was about four to five yeah. years ago, though. You know, and David, I'm curious, you know, watching this movie, and I really you know, recommend it for you know, the scenes you construct and the visuals and these incredible vistas. Um, they brought to mind a lot of these classic science fiction covers where yeah. you get you get this incredible scene of a future city and maybe you have a, a character, you know, hanging out, you know, sitting on a ledge, you know, miles above the ground. You don't always know why they're there. You don't always know all the answers of what there's, what's motivating them. But you have a sense that you have a glimpse inside of a world and inside of something being right. imagined. Right. What, what was the approach to, I think, really spreading some creative wings and and kind of not always giving the viewer all of the answers. Right. I think um, uh, stories that have to be wrapped up in the nice uh, kind of bow tie, I, those are perfectly fine. But um, with uh, the story that we wanted to tell, that I wanted to tell, uh, it kind of stemmed from a place where I wanted you to really think about uh, uh, the meaning. I wanted you to think about the layers. And it kind of goes back to the <laughs> to the title of the film, you know, Underneath Children of the Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and where does Children of the Sun really come from? That's a term that, uh, that you know, black people from uh, Kemet or Egypt were uh, called the people of the Children of the Sun. And so I was, I didn't necessarily want every single thing to be as just laid out for you so that you could just like be like, okay, I, you know, I totally got it. But I wanted you to buy into the premise. I wanted you to feel it on an emotional level and begin to just think about what was being said and what ideas were actually being proposed to the viewer. So. And 
Reynaldo, I wanted to ask, you know, you, you brought up a point um, before our break about that there's a difference between Afrofuturism and science fiction. And it, it feels like that that question or that tension is, is in this film as well. Is this an Afrofuturist film with science fiction tropes? Is it a science fiction movie that becomes an Afrofuturist epic as this this prism, this actual literal, you know, a, tri- a triangle pyramid drops into the plot and sends us all on this journey? Unwrap that distinction for us. Where did the science fiction begin, and and where does Afrofuturism begin? Well, for me, Afrofuturism begins from a certain geography of reason. And by I mean geography of reason, the story starts in Kemet uh, with the storyline. Then it moves into the future, and then it moves into the past, again, looking at the antebellum period there in Missouri, and one thing I appreciate about David's work in this, when we're talking Afrofuturism, we're talking about how the past, present, and future can amiss, uh, exist together simultaneously, and how he uses the different timelines to weave that story together. And so when I see underneath, I think of the local uh, Missouri history of the... Um, the, the great anti-slavery leader, uh, Father Dixon, I believe his name was, out in, who was lived in West County. Um, and I think of the African-American uh, pioneer of black speculative thought, Martin Delaney, who writes uh, this series before on the eve of the Civil War called Hut, which talks about the need for enslaved Africans to get their own nation together. Uh, and that and that story was really in opposition to uh, the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm-hmm. and so so that's kind of where you see that tension exists. Whereas for Afrofuturism, you're talking about African agency, and where in so- European or Western science fiction, we kind when you have black people in it, they're kind of like accessories in the story, but their agency is not central to the story. We're discussing the rise of Afrofuturism and the movement with three St. Louis-connected creatives, filmmaker David Kirkman, Professor Reynaldo Anderson, and multidisciplinary artist Deja Polk. Deja, I wanted to ask you about this recent event in August as part of the Black Speculative Arts Movement. You presented a Black Futures Festival as a combination of a live and virtual events, and you took so many different looks at Afrofuturism. Um, tell us about that event and what stood out to you about the community engaging in so many ways on this subject. Uh, so first and foremost, I'd like to thank uh, the brain of Dr. Renella Anderson, uh, who continues to um, be one of the forerunners uh, within this conversation. It is through um, his amazing connections that we even have uh, what is called the Black Speculative Arts Movement um, as it stands today. And one thing that I thought when we first um, started to engage the community with uh, the concept of Afrofuturism or just even thinking outside the box in those terms. Um, we had no idea, you know, what we had in our hands, but we knew that it was something special. And when we did the partnership with Carnegie Hall at the top of the year, um, it was just a brilliant strategy to kind of take this thing that's kind of a mouthful to say, Black Speculative Arts Movement, and redefine it as something a little bit more digestible and Henceforth, the Black Futures Festival was born. So it was our ability to take what we had already been doing as the Black Speculative Arts Movement, hosting festivals throughout the year, all over the world. Um, and we were able to uh, rebrand it in a way where people were like, oh, whoa, whoa what is this? What? So I honestly feel like this year, 
of the event that we did in August, we received so much more um, attention and energy than we had ever received before. But we had kind of been building up this momentum up to this point, to be honest, with all the stuff that we've been doing, even outside the city of St. Louis. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we, we were just hearing Raynaldo talk about the importance of agency. And in, in a lot of ways, is St. Louis an Afrofuturist city or one that could be? Is that something that you that resonates with you? Absolutely. Um, I mean, you can look around and see the redevelopment happening in St. Louis. And you can't think for a moment that there isn't some sort of diversity inclusion that has some people that look like me working behind the scenes, you know. Um, so I do know that there are definitely some major key players that are involved in a lot of what's happening in the city development wise. And to me, that absolutely speaks to the mission behind Afrofuturism is to be a part of moving forward everything. Um, because at the end of the day, a lot of what we do as black creatives, African people, we influence everything. That's right. Reynaldo, very quickly, does that resonate with you as St. Louis as, as an aspiring Afrofuturist city or, or one that already exists? I think it inspires to be. And I think uh, the recent driving force of it emerged in the wake of the Ferguson Rebellion, because Ferguson is kind of the connection between me Daisha and David in terms of each one of our roles in respect to that. And that's where you saw a different level of energy and interest around uh, the agency of people of African descent and innovation and technology and culture then begin to, those threads beginning to come together in the wake of that uh, incident. And uh, because I would say before, 10 years ago when I was just putting together some of the theoretical stuff behind this when I was a professor at Harris Stowe State University, everybody that was doing this work knew each other. But then by about four or five years ago, it's, it's just mushroomed out to where you have a vast number of people interested in different aspects of it, whether it's in architecture, fashion, literature, um, forecasting, uh augmented reality. So it's just a continual exploding kind of phenomenon at the moment. And I would say uh, it will be institutionalized when it becomes normalized within the public education system in terms of how uh, it, uh, when we do our events, I've had single parents come and tell us that uh, that bring their kids to our events. Thank you, Reynaldo. Uh, Reynaldo Anderson is an associate professor of Africology and African-American studies at Temple University, and he's also the executive director and co-founder of the Black Speculative Arts Movement. We also wanted to thank David Kirkman uh, for being here. He's a St. Louis filmmaker whose debut film is the Afrofuturist epic Underneath Children of the Sun. And finally, Deja Polk, a multidisciplinary artist and the field coordinator for the Black Speculative Arts Movement in the Midwest. David, Reynaldo, Deja, thank you all so much for being here. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for the invitation. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Alex Hoyer is our executive producer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. 
Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.